Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, we do a part two week around here. We do it right. Jello Biafra is back, former member of the Dead Kennedys, a member of Lard. Punk rock legend. He has a brand new record with his Jello Biafra and the Guantanamo School of Medicine band. They, it is called Tea Party Revenge Porn. It is available now. And we will be talking about that. And oh my gosh, this is a good one. <laughs> it's a long one. He's in a feisty mood for this episode. Before we get to today's show, uh, you might be wondering why I sound a little bit weird. It's because I do not have my microphone with me. I'm not at home right now. And I unfortunately packed the wrong mic. And so I'm recording this on my phone. So I do apologize for the uh, ham radio-esque quality for this introduction. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan. Thank you for all the hard work you do. I love you, buddy. And he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for damien If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just tell all your friends about it. You can subscribe to it and rate it on iTunes. You can head over to patreon.com and thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that does do that and check out the stuff we do over there. And speaking of support, this thing would not be possible with the kind support of Vans. Came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, just just let us help you cover the cost of doing this thing at least. And they helped me cover the cost of doing this thing, which has been great. And I uh, really appreciate it. And I hope they continue to do that because uh, it'd be hard to make this thing happen without it. Oh my gosh. And I can't wait till this thing's over. And hopefully I can get out to the house of Vans and get to see some people in person again. I can't wait till this thing's over for a lot of reasons, but oh man, that's definitely one of them. Uh, okay, on to today's show. Oh, before we get to that, actually, once again, check out floodmagazine.com uh, because there's another episode of Punk as Fuck where I'm hanging out with Brian Ray Turcott. And if you're not familiar with Brian Ray Turcott, he is sort of, I would say, one of the preeminent punk collectors in the world of of ephemera, he has a collection that has to be seen to be believed, and luckily we were able to kind of go in and see it. He's got this vault that honestly, it's, <laughs> oh man, you'll see in the video. I, I look like uh, one of the kids in Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory when I walk in there. It is it is something to behold. Okay, anyway, on to today's show. Today on the show, we have, we have a legend worthy of a museum right here. Uh, Jello Biafra is back. Jello is someone who I've gotten to become kind of friends with over the years. We even went on a cruise together a couple years ago on the Bruise Cruise and uh, hung out, uh, you know, uh, numerous times. Uh, so when I heard he was coming back on the show, I was super stoked. And uh, yeah, it, it was a great time. He was in a feisty mood. He was definitely in a very feisty mood, as you'll hear. And uh, I think it makes for a fun interview. There are some notes I should get to. Uh, we do have the cameras on. Jello wanted to keep the cameras on. I'm I'm of two minds, you know, uh, on this subject. I can see why people like having cameras on because you can react to the other person. You see what their expression is. But it, it also, I think, affects the interview. Like there's things that you kind of reference that, you know, you, you can't necessarily hear or doesn't translate as well with audio. So just, just bear that in mind. I don't think it affects the interview too much, but that's just something to bear in mind. Uh, also, two of the massacre guys went on to be in The Descendants. Uh, we... <laughs> I don't know why we only picked up on one, but two of those guys did. Uh, also, Moon Unit, who makes a cameo appearance, is Jello Biafra's cat. And I don't know why I insist on mispronouncing H.R. Geeger's name. I, I, but I do for some reason, so I apologize to uh, him for that. 
Uh, and that is, uh, that is that. I think that's it for the notes. Uh, this is a fun one. Get ready. There's a lot of cool stuff in this. Uh, Guantanamo, uh, sorry, Jello Biafra in the Guantanamo School of Medicine's new record, The Tea Party Revenge, is available now, or just Tea Party Revenge porn, is available now on streaming services and, and the like. And uh, the vinyl's going to be shipping very soon. I think it's actually the vinyl's already out shipped now. And uh, yeah, this is a fun one. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Jello Biafra Part 2 on Turned Out a Punk. Yellow, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Well, it's part two, man. We we got to do that one part in Toronto that one night where we went out to uh, Grasshopper Records after where, afterwards and, and we hung out. But I feel like this is a lot more comfortable than up in Daryl's apartment above the bovine. <laughs> yeah, now that the memories come back, yeah, kind of is, but... Uh... Nice place to stay if you're traveling. Absolutely. And you know what? Uh, you know, mad love to our, our mutual friend, Melanie Kay, who put that together then. And uh, yeah, but I'm very stoked to have you here where I'm relaxing uh, my my cool. my home and you're relaxing your home. And we can finally dig into all this really nerdy details. Because as I was just telling you off here, you're kind of my, you're my hero on so many levels, not just on, on stage, but also in... That shows how little you know me. <laughs> Well, every opportunity to get to know you a little bit better, I, I relish. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, one thing I was wondering is I read that you were actually jamming with other people before you joined the Dead Kennedys or for, before the Dead Kennedys formed. What were some of the other bands and people you were jamming with in San Francisco in the early days? Well, I mean, me and my friend John Greenway and then sometimes uh, another one named Sam some others, we banged around on instruments we couldn't play when our parents weren't home and that went on for a while. They eventually took that band live after I left. It was called The Healers, named after those secret police and the superhero outfits and a certain religious comic book by Jack T. Chick. If you've ever seen those little <laughs> yeah. comics, they're about that big and stuff. Absolutely. My favorite comic artist of all time. <laughs> oh, a genius. And- a genius. And nobody, I mean, nobody except somebody that demented would have thought of stormtroopers and superhero <laughs> outfits with a bunch of hypodermic needles in their arm, shooting people up with drugs to punish them for reading the Bible and stuff. So, uh, and they were called the healers. So that's where that came from. That, that's kind of, I mean, me and John have both listened to that stuff occasionally. Like, no, this is for us and us alone. Well, the, the two of those songs came out, right? Two, on that comp? um maybe the rocky mountain low you mean yeah uh yeah yeah including an earlier california uber alice before i put the music to it that yeah we all know now is kind of a jam that was when two bands like that merged the healers and the dancing assholes and (laughs) got a key to an empty pizza hut on the university of colorado campus and did it there the dancing assholes did play live later after I'd moved away. There were some of the other original punks and troublemakers and whatnot, all in one band. It's amazing how, like, you know, since we talked uh, last, it's I've, not I've... something for anal people to go scouring for, though, <laughs> and stuff. It's uh, it's even less interesting than picking up a hard rock single from the mid '70s because Gigi Allen was the drummer. You know, like that malpractice single? I love that malpractice single. 
Well, I have it somewhere. I didn't even know what it was. It came to me some other way, but uh, we shall see. Maybe that was not a good example, but uh, <laughs> I still don't know which supposed psych, although I'll bet it wasn't, um, band made a major label album in the late 60s, early 70s that supposedly had Lee Ving in it. Whoa, I've never heard about that. I mean, that other really trippy, delicate, but really cool psych thing at uh, the NASCO label, which used to put out like rhythm and blues and rockabilly and some other things, um, part of NASCO, Excello, Nashboro, that whole empire. They tried to do rock records briefly. And not only was one band called Electric Toilet, but there's another one called Felt. Never even seen a real copy of the Felt album, but it's interesting stuff. Mm. And there's a guitar player on the back named Stan Lee. Widely rumored to be Stan Lee of the Dickies. Wow, I man. asked him face to face. He said, no, it's not him. And then he claimed he drew Spider-Man. <laughs> so uh, who knows? Have you ever heard that Beauregard record with Greg Sage on guitar? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's amazing how like... Uh... All these, all these things that you can kind of get unearthed that are out there, you know? Yeah, I didn't even notice he was on it till I'd had that record for a while, too. Singing, wrestler, lost private press thing from that year. I didn't know he was a wrestler at first either, but uh, good old Phil Irwin, a.k.a. the Whiskey Rebel, who wrote the Job Jumper book and those columns for Hit List and other mm -hmm. things. He had Rancid Vad and Alcoholics Unanimous were... His band, his wife Marla's bands, and um, sadly we lost him a year or two ago. Good friend, good guy. But at the time I met him in Portland, he was just handing me like old garage records and other things. Here, listen to these. They're cool. Send me something weird in return, whatever it was. The opposite of like the hedge fund record collectors. Oh, oh yeah, must have Ramon's record from Japan with special promo sticker on it or I don't want the record. And people like that. No, this was the opposite. Hand me where it should hand me. And so it was a reverse thing like the Pacific Northwest Aboriginals where uh, you try to out gift each other and the, the 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 you know things like this wild rhythm and blues things king kong by big t tyler he handed me that and the one that really hooked him was when i got him simon stokes albums there there's a there i heard that fixed vengeance now goes for 10 grand mm, yeah i had a couple of those at one time i don't know what i did with the other one it's it, but, it it's uh, amazing we've hit that point now with with punk records well all i can say is anybody who would pay that much money for that or any other record deserves to be ripped off. <laughs> it, it, did you used to trade records back in the day? Like when did you start really trading punk records? Not with like, like, Oh yeah, this one's worth this much. This is worth that much. You know, I can't stand those people, yeah. but um, you know, cause now I got one off one, not realizing it was going to go into hedge fund territory. Cause he got hold of a, a one-of-a-kind acetate of too drunk to fuck with the fucks blipped out. Oh, weird. That I'm guessing Gaza had it cut, Gaza X, to give to Rodney Bingenheimer to get it on K-Rock. And Gaza doesn't remember it, although he used to go to that guy's mastering place. So um, that's likely what it is. I said, hey, wait a minute, my friend. This belongs in the dead Kennedy library. Wow. And he understood that. But now it's like, you know, suddenly it's all monetary, this and that. And I'm like, oh, God, I don't ever want to do this once I'm done with this one. <laughs> what, what about that Greek pressing? It, was that like a legit pressing or not? That was a legit pressing, as was the one on the Polish communist government's label later. Wow. 
both licensed out of Cherry Red in England. And the one in Greece turned out to be a major label there who puts out all kinds of things and, you know, lots of pop hits, lots of other things, 78 RPM that lasts a little longer <laughs> there than some other countries. And uh, even mainstream Greek pop music, like you hear in a taxi cab or something, it's Greek music. Mm. So it sounds way cooler than North American or European crapo pop music and stuff. So, uh, yeah, I have I grab Greek garage singles on that same label, Music Box Records. It's such a weird label too, like the the graphic on it. Like, did it ever have a sleeve? Um, are you talking about the single? The single for yeah, like to fuck because Fresh Fruit went out on Music. Oh, they Box actually don't too. know. Wow, that's oh, that's wild. They yeah, didn't yeah, and of course that did have the sleeve. I don't think Too Drunk to Fuck did. Although then J.D. Montagnon, the guy who ran Midnight Records, the mail order place out of New York, we could get a lot of, lot of modern garage records. You know, the Midnight label was part of that and whatnot, who even put out the Suburban Nightmare 12-inch before they changed their name to the Dwarves. Yeah. Anyway, um, I think he got a hold of some and then made his own sleeves with like a black and white on red paper Xerox of the real sleeve and wrapped it around. Okay, that explains why I've seen yeah. something like that. Yeah, and, and, and that was a huge favor to me because there was another guy at Records From who again is like, I thought he was just kind of a 50s guy because there was really cool garage stuff, a lot of rockabilly, rhythm and blues and other things, a lot of soul too on a list you need a magnifying glass to read and things. And But he was a huge novelty collector. Passion was novelties. And so I began realizing that whenever he ran into a punk record, he put it in his novelty section which was how I found out about the Beach Mutants, who I think were from out your way, weren't they? I believe they're from Edmonton, right? I think so. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think they were Eastern Canada, pretty sure. I, I think I they're from look. the Prairies, but I, I I know the single you're talking about, but I, I don't Yeah, know. yeah. Anyway, um, and then one fine day, there was Too Drunk to Fuck. And he um, misdescribed, well, there he goes looking for the Beach Mutants. We recording, we better be. Yeah, we are. We are definitely. Good. Good. Okay. Um, and I think he mischaracterized Dead Kennedy's not knowing any better in his world as a Greek band. I'm saying, hey, wait a minute, that's my band. And then he writes back, well, it doesn't have your name on the back, Eric. I'm not, is this really your band? Like, oh my God, he doesn't know my other name. Those people don't. So then I uh, came clean with the man. And instead of just being a guy who I fear was all in, oh, Elvis is dead. Oh, this was the golden age. And most of those people are really conservative politically, if they're anything like that at all. But it turned out my old buddy, Frank, um, you know, finally I got his phone number and we became great friends. He's politically radical. He likes throbbing gristle as much as he likes his rockabilly and rhythm and blues. And uh, he never knew who Crass was. I'm saying, Frank, political novelty. You're not you're going to lose it when you hear this stuff <laughs> and everything. So, uh, you know, the, the, the Dr. Demento lens as applied to political punk. And so then he narrowed it to I don't want any more of these unless you can understand the words when you play the record. So you got to get like the most articulate punk bands possible now. 
Well, the ones where the vocals are clear. I can't yeah. remember what happened to the one that EP that had someone please kill Lenny Kravitz on it. But uh, oh yeah, I don't know who did that song. called REM sucks. <laughs> I, I did. I reached over and I got my Beach Mutants. Uh, they're there from Winnipeg. I'll be damned. I, I, that is the Prairies. Yeah, I know. I I thought it was Edmonton because Edmonton had a big scene too. But I also Winnipeg. It's actually kind of interesting how. You know, you go further west in Canada, you get actually a lot more punk records coming out. You know, like it just feels like it, it was a lot more. Yeah, I don't know, just together as far as the scenes well, go. Well, with the exception of the Vile Tones, it seems like a lot of the early Toronto punk records still had a uh, a, a rock and roll, hard rock element to it. I mean, we played in Toronto in, in 81, 82. It was kind of a surprise how many people in the bands we played with not only kind of sounded like that, but had mullets too, which is, you know, you might call hockey hair up there, but uh, you know, the, the hardcore sound and the more stripped down stuff hit a little later there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it didn't, it never really actually hit that hard either. Like it never, I and mean, that's what they, that's what you folks get for not supporting the skulls when they were living in Toronto and came back to Vancouver with their tails between their legs and, doa and the subhumans were born oh it's it's wild when you go through vancouver how many bands came out of that scene because it's like such a small city but it's got to be one of the most productive scenes. not a small city oh like in the grand scheme <laughs> of things compared to like a los angeles or a new york or you know like a san francisco i mean what people in toronto don't realize when everybody in toronto see including people we know and love think it's like it's this huge cultural hub like london or new york city oh. and all this stuff going on and a lot of the more significant stuff musically and in other areas that's come out of canada in the last 20 30 years even 40 vancouver yeah. not toronto i think it, it shifted i think it shifted in the uh early 2000s and i think now with drake i think everything is kind of like different and I, I you know but i think oh but you're drake's right. toronto that's what i'm saying it shifted with toronto like i think oh it shifted oh toronto it shifted back to back toronto, to toronto. Is, yeah interesting because yeah. uh, the film industry went more for vancouver oh, definitely you shoot yeah. mountain stuff you can shoot prairie stuff you can shoot you know major city usa that nobody recognizes because it's not even in the usa yeah you every, know, every they keep doing every netflix I'm, show is shot there it seems like you know it, i mean the the uh the next you know if it happens the next um chapter in the night of the living dead dawn of the dead series may well be shot in the bc interior the northern bc interior yeah <laughs> nice and uh safe you can do socially distanced filming out there one thing i wanted to ask you about though speaking of films is how did that um eraser head soundtrack wind up on alternative tentacles i can't exactly remember i think it was done from the british end okay by the guy who ran atuk who then uh contacted um probably miles copeland the guy who owned irs and faulty products and you know you you're not going to release it over here no no just put it out and we did one run of them and it kind of came and went it's amazing when you go through alternative tentacles like it, it is in such an incredible catalog and really like you know obviously there's there's like you know the the label and the records you're known for but there's also just like these weird little outlier releases like you know, short of the Bad Brains self-release single, you're, you're the first label that puts out a Bad Brains record. 
Yeah, that was the first vinyl. That's true. Yeah. And the only way we could get it was if we didn't do the whole cassette album and just did a 12-inch EP. How did you hear the cassette? Was it just something that was kind of well-circulated, the Roar cassette? No, it was a cassette-only album release by Roar. Remember Mm -hmm. that label? There was cassettes only and stuff, and they happened to land that Bad Brains album. So one of the very, very top hardcore and punk albums ever made never hit vinyl till long after it came out on CD because it was a cassette album, like everything else on that label. So how'd you meet those guys and how did that, like, how did that release come to pass? Um, again, I think it was negotiated out of England because ATUK was about the only part of the label at that point. <clears throat> the American one got rebooted, relaunched later. And, um, you know, I wanted to do something for overseas because they, you know, we'd gotten so successful there compared to any other band we knew. And it was not as though we were the the best band or the best known band. And we just lucked out because Bob Last of Fast Product, that Scottish label that debuted Gang of Four and Mekons and Human League and put Joy Division on their comp when they were unknown. Everybody was watching that label. So anything that came out, people would just go nuts over it. And um, they wanted to put out a British version of California Uber Alice. And so that was just a sudden stroke of luck. Could have happened to X or the Dills or the Weirdos or any number of other bands, but it didn't. So um, there it was. But I also felt because we drew people and people asked, why aren't there any other good bands in America? And I'm like, oh, come on, people. On the other hand, they had no access to them. They weren't being imported. They didn't know they existed. Let's see if we can fix that. (laughs) Thus, Let Them Eat Jelly Beans was born. So how did you meet Seven Seconds? Because they were like a really early release. Did you see them and know them before they were on the Maximum Rock and Roll comp? Oh, much. Yeah. 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 I never saw the original five-piece lineup where Dim Menace was the singer, the guy who's on the cover of Skins, Brains, and Guts, and uh, his brother, Tom Borgino, went by Tom Yunus, was a drummer, double guitar band. Uh, Kevin was one of two guitar players and stuff. Well, anyway... um, we Dead Kennedys played an outdoor show in a parking lot at a mall on the back of a flatbed trailer to promote a friend's record store. And the main reason I remember that show so well is at one point, things got a little out of balance on that trailer and the whole thing tipped. And so the amp cabinets, the amps, the drum set all slid at once. And then it went back and everything just slid at the same amount of time. So the drums are all in the right place. And we just kept on playing. (laughs) And in the crowd were these two guys, kind of with standard, a little bit blow dried hair from the seventies at the time. I think it was Kevin and Steve, definitely Kevin. Yeah, we had a band up in Reno, it's called Seven Seconds. Like, wow cool abandoned reno i wonder where the name came from and then a little bit later jeff bale from maximum rock and roll said yeah there was this great band that just played a babuie called seven seconds they're from fucking reno i went oh so this band has legs and but eventually one of one of their friends brought us up to reno for a couple gigs and uh, the scenes were pretty tight by then it's it's amazing, like, you know, they're just one of the bands that you're kind of, like, running into along the way, you know? And I think, you know, like, you know, this band has legs. They're a band that would go on and change, you know, hardcore in a whole different way, you know, like a, yeah. a completely different yeah. scene. What, when did you first go to Australia? 
83. What was that tour like? Um, it was a real breath of fresh air for the band because by then, um, it had been two years of all hardcore, all the time, everywhere in, uh, North America. And that was starting to happen in Europe too. And so we go down to Australia where, you know, people didn't know just how rich the punk history was down there. I mean, we knew about the saints, and a little bit more, and oh yeah, we have this one kind of black flaggy band called Depression now, and some other ones. But for the most part, it was like older days where we played with a wide variety of bands, including Depression and maybe their first skate punk hardcore band, also in Melbourne, called Civil Dissident was another one. And then on the other hand, there was a real odd one, kind of like Savage Republic called Wrong Kind of Stone Age. Yeah. That I got added to a bill in Sydney. As soon as I got the lay of the land, you know, we kept returning to these cities, playing different parts of them. Mm. That was the way you had to do it back then. You played neighborhoods. You could tour Sydney. In part, I discovered, because hardly anybody there had any sense of geography whatsoever. At least at that point, only one person I know went to all the Dead Kennedy shows in the Sydney area. And it turned out he was the guy who did Trousers in Action and started the Aberrant label that gave us Feed Time and King Snake Roost and Toys Went Berserk and a bunch of other stuff. Later, a gag writer for TV comedy shows and a stand-up comedian, still a really good friend. And um, anyway, you, and I even had to direct cab drivers. <laughs> to record stores I wanted to go to. And I'd only been there once or twice. No, no, you want to turn here. And so, uh, and this was not foreign drivers with language limitations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, uh, Australia has a very thriving Middle Eastern population, Greek population, but it's so many generations old that the the, the younger ones, you know, are, are uh, you know, sound like every other Australian. It's it's a they still uh, didn't know where they were going. Yeah, like I've, I've, it's very much like uh, even Melbourne's like that too, very neighborhood like, and like you don't really like leave the downtown core if you're from the downtown core you're, you're kind of a little suburb yeah we played in the burbs some there too in melbourne and, you, know, you could kind of, yeah you'd kind of tell you were really out in the sticks when you know when it was obvious the whole crowd had never seen a punk rock show before and most of them didn't even know what it was they were just at the bar that night yeah but uh good stuff and then a one we wound up hooking up with repeatedly who we got paired with initially for one sydney show um, when I talk about variety in bands, one thing that was also a breath of fresh air was um, about the first day I was there, a guy working on a tour played me a single he was about to put out by a band called the Lime Spiders. Mm. And that was like, oh my God, this is like garage rock and stooges, but it's got this fierceness all its own. And it turned out it was the very beginning of this post-radio Birdman inspired scene there. I mean, the hoodoo gurus were just getting going and Rob Younger had the new Christs and scientists had dropped their power pop stuff and was more like the scientists we know now. I missed getting to see them by one day before I left Sydney, but um, saw a lot of the other bands. And, and and one of the main ones, the only band that would play with us was the Celibate Rifles. Oh, awesome. Who were kind of a little bit on a separate scene. They weren't on that Citadel label. They were uh, 
handled by an alternative kind of homegrown rough trady thing called hot yeah Yeah. and that was their first you know flagship band and hot was two or three blocks from our hotel so that was my first stop and going around record stores too (laughs) and um and they they i mean you've probably seen them i'm sure they played in toronto any number of times and you know it's got the the birdman sound the birdman power and then you've got this taller guy who kind of looked much older than he actually was just standing in the middle of the stage smoking cigarettes in amidst his monotone words but then the words were not sex drugs and rock and roll at all unless for the most part they were brilliantly satirizing that whole thing mm-hmm. And so Damien, the singer, and I in particular became uh, pretty tight pretty quick down there. And uh, and we kept in touch over the years. And I wound up being the Celibates Hotel when they came to San Francisco. And yeah, my cat just slept, slept on one of your heads, just like she does with DOA and with D Boone and the others. She always gets one. I almost suffocated. Yeah, that's part of the idea, too. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so um, that was the beginning of a long friendship and everything and sadly Damien died a couple of years ago of cancer oh, sorry to hear that. and stuff at age 65 so uh and we and Guantanamo School of Medicine had played with the rifles too they didn't play too often anymore but they they reformed to play with us basically in a gold coast gig south of Brisbane and then uh then uh, I believe one oh maybe that was the only one was the Brisbane area once because we played do we play with the hard-ons in Sydney? I can't remember. We did them somewhere. We must have. Yeah. Maybe we only played with them in Spain. I can't remember. But ironically, the first time I met them, or at least Rayon and probably Blackie, very first show we play in Sydney, then I come out, there's a couple kids, uh, you know, mid-teens, wanted to talk to me a little bit. So I talked to them and mentioned they had just been beat up. by what they called yabos and stuff outside that show and one of them say was beat up because of his race and that would be the uh, korean ancestry rayon from the Mm hard-ons so uh, then later they the hard-ons you know have a head of steam going they play in san francisco and hey remember me i'm the kid who got beat up in front of your show (laughs) really Wow. That's a, well, I guess that's the thing, like you're saying. Like and they were still having problems with that. Even as a band, yeah. it was supposed to be some calculated controversy. There was only one white person in the band because the drummer Keish at the time was of East Indian ancestry mm-hmm. who, who did, the, did the vocals at that point as well. And they, they were still getting shit for that. Oh, there's, there's... It was some kind of calculated controversial gimmick or something. Yeah, there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of, you know, obviously white nationalism everywhere, but there's tons of it in Australia. Like well, yeah, that that we know, too, because they keep voting. They Their prime ministers keep winning. Yeah, no, it's the definitely. so-called liberal party mm-hmm. that hates actual liberals almost as much as the British Labour Party hates workers or the American Democrats hate democracy. <laughs> Uh, you brought up the Lime Spiders there, and it's it's funny, like, talking to Brian Baker, he was saying how much of an influence that band was on all those DC bands at a really? certain point. Yeah, like, he was saying that, like, them and that band Empire 
were like foundational to that whole change in sound that kind of happens pre-revolution summer. Yeah, I, I I played Empire again after I found out how much Henry liked him and stuff, and I still don't get it. Really, you don't like? I think the music. You don't hear the music as kind of interesting. Oh, it was interesting, but it didn't blow me away. <laughs> Just my personal taste. Yeah, no, but it's amazing when you hear it. You're like, oh, that definitely sounds like where all these bands were kind of going with like embrace and all that kind of stuff. And what would have happened if they listened to the government instead? Hemingway you know, the Toronto disco. band. Absolutely. Hemingway eats disco a classic. And somebody gave me a flat tires. <laughs> oh, we ain't going to fool around on the freeway. <laughs> yeah. Um, something happened where we were talking to them about being on let them eat jelly beans. And I think it kind of fell through the cracks. Really? I remember. Cause Later on, Donna, me, oh my God, what happened to the government? They're not here now. And by then, the record was out. So apologies to them if we left them hanging. What was what were the band Pink section like? Speaking of, um, art with a capital A. Okay. A lot of the punks, even then, didn't really like them, but I I liked them. Yeah, I, think I thought they were interesting. Fantastic. Yeah. One of the things that kind of comes up on the show a lot too is that you were a very scary front person. A lot of people talk about how yeah, during the live show you would have this sort of like, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, like like uh, recently uh, Mouse was on and she was talking about how you were one of the most intimidating front people to shoot back in the day because you had this aura to you. Huh. That's interesting. Well, it seems like that, but that's <laughs> nobody's like some... ever called me that before. <laughs> I don't know. That yeah, up. I tried for stage presence and tried to, you know, do something that would penetrate. Mm-hmm. But I think that's like the thing is like you very early on are that person, and that I think you know a lot of singers in punk rock have kind of you know become this a little bit to a lesser extent, but you become like almost an icon immediately. You know, and I think that is like, you know, to the fact that people like attribute all these things to you just as the front person of a band. <laughs> yeah, Melanie wanted me to donate the green gloves to Fat Mike's <laughs> Museum. We don't want posters. We want three-dimensional. Give us the gloves. Like, hey, wait a minute. Those are mine. <laughs> you know, that's like, that's like that person searching me at the airport who tried to take my belt buckle that I've had all these years saying it was a ninja star. And I was like, no, you can't have it. My pants will fall down. And he still got grumpy till I let go of my pants and they did start falling down. And then he finally gave me my damn belt back. So, uh, <laughs> oh man. But I um, mean, I only wore those gloves during at two or three gigs. Yeah. I like found a few of them somewhere, so you don't waste them. You you do it for special occasions, it becomes its own cliche. And sure enough, because it's in the on Broadway video, it's its own cliche now. And I brought the gloves back in the early shows for Guantanamo School of Medicine, but not green ones. I used white ones, clear ones, whatever I could get my hands on, because I would cover them with fake blood. And with kind of a bloody doctor's coat, it was for the song we'd open with called Terror of Tiny Town which is compare, was comparing uh, George W. Bush and the Iraq invasion and stuff to that cowboy movie of the 1930s, where sure enough, the villain, the terror of Tiny Town, you know, invades, kills, and ultimately it all 
gets over his head and that's the end of him mm. and so i think i think that's the thing for dubby he was the terror of tiny town and that was about it so i come out with that the gloves and bloody doctor's coat and then luckily the coat had snaps on it or has snaps on it she wanted that too but no i still use that so um you know i pull it open and there was an american flag and underneath so that was to make a point yeah and eventually yeah. they all came back and gloves would come off and i'd shoot him like a rubber band into the crowd if i could I didn't always work so it would look really stupid i tried boing and it would just fall by my toes but you know you do stuff like that you have to be willing to fail yep and fuck up i mean i decided early on even though i wanted something theatrical those are my leanings no alice cooper props Everything's got to be illustrated by hand or something I find on stage that night or nothing gets used like that. What was the weirdest thing you ever found on stage that you got to incorporate? Boy, that's a hard one. Oh, oh wait a minute. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> there was this great venue that I think still exists in Seattle called the Showbox. Mm -hmm which goes clear back to like a roller rink decades before there was even rock music, as far as I know, and stuff like that. Dead Kennedys played shows there. My No WTO combo album was recorded live there during the Seattle protest. Spoken word there later, whatever. Very, very, venue means a lot to me and a lot of other people. And I think it was the second time, maybe not the third time, because we just played in Vancouver. We came down, played a show there, and I missed Husker Du, who I'd heard the name, but didn't know who they were yet and stuff. Rampage, or any Rampage was telling me, you got to see this band Husker Du. They're touring around right now. And um, they just had the one single, the Amusement Statues one then, that did not represent the land speed record material I would soon be subjected to. And Grant knocked on the door of my place at nine in the morning. Woman answers, hi, we're Husker Du. We've come to stay. And they didn't leave for a month. <laughs> They were broke. I had to pretend I was their landlord to get them food stamps and stuff. But we also admit we became really, really good friends because mm -hmm. of all that whatnot. I was a Husker Hotel for many years after that and vice versa with Bob in Minneapolis. But uh, anyway, so Husker played. I got there in time for the farts. So, oh, Seattle has a hardcore band now. This is a really good one, too. And then the EP came out and it was like, this is a really good record. Yeah. So we put that out on the UK end of the label and then the 12 inch out on the American end of the label where they sent me a kidnap ransom letter note with cut out letters from magazines. We demand you put out our album on AT. I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> but anyway, what had been sitting there the whole time, I think toxic reasons were on that bill too. Anyway, there were all these potted plants on stage. The plasmatics had been there a night or two before and left these potted plants on stage plastic pots luckily so i began pulling them out soil attached and tried to start you know shoving them in people's faces and they started eating them they started eating the dirt or pulling aside there was already beer and other liquid flying everywhere then the plants pulled out of the pots began flying everywhere and i wound up doing most of the show in two inches of mud on stage because of all those flying plasmatic plants oh that's awesome that is amazing. that was a pretty good one 
Well, you're going around, like you're saying, like, you know, Husker Du and, you know, DOA, like, it just feels like this is the moment that you're on this tour, you're kind of seeing every scene as it's kind of like taking off. Like, I know you guys toured before every scene took off, but like, there's a point where you're touring around and it must have felt like every place you're going to, there's like a new, a new thing popping up. Yeah, and I tried to keep up with who they were so I could try and make sure those bands got on the bill instead of friends of bar owner who sound like the Marshall Tucker band and have swastika armbands on or something like that. So, you know, the more we took control of that and no more skinny tie poppy bands or whatever, you know, the better. And uh, and by then... and. and what stitched all that together was a few things. I mean, the one who did the most to crack open these towns would take chances anywhere from either promoters or a kid writing them or whatever was Black Flag. Mm. And then followed by DOA, which laid the groundwork for a more extensive national tour by Dead Kennedys. And, you know, who, where, I don't know if we would have played in Salt Lake City, except Flag was there first and the massacre guys started and stuff. Yeah. So um, one of whom eventually went to all and the descendants and all that. And then um, so, so, and the other part was slowly, but surely people figured out because they went from being a radio show to also being a zine maximum rock and roll where people could send in a cassette. They recorded two hours before. And, you know, if the return address was like Knoxville, Tennessee or something that music if it was good got played on the show which by then was being syndicated to other independent underground radio stations thus fresno had this scene before anybody would have thought they would and stuff because mrr went out on a, what was a kpft there maybe kp of something one of the pacifica network stations and so there they had they had bads and, you know, so there was correspondence, there was people sending in scene reports for different towns. And um, so there was all, and, and MRR quickly went international because people like Timmy O'Hannon and Jeff Bale and myself and Pusshead were vinyl collectors. And oh my God, there's punk in Finland. We want all of it and stuff. <laughs> Little did we know there was so much nobody's ever gotten at all, even in Finland. Yeah. I think there's more early punk stuff in Finland than in Sweden by a goodly amount. And that is saying something. But anyway, um, so there, beca there began to be this, you know, very, very below ground grassroots network where you could find like-minded bands in these different places. I like, you know, you brought up an interesting point there about Finland. I always kind of wonder this, like, what do you think is the biggest scene per capita? Because like, you know, you think about Iceland, how many punk bands came into Iceland, given how small the population is? I've but... hardly ever heard anything punk out of Iceland, ever. Other things, yes. Well, they're like, you but... know, it, well, that Rock and Reykjavik compilation, there's like, obviously stuff that's like less punk punk, capital P punk. But like, I mean, like, to broadly term sort of post-punk new wave all under the you know, punk yeah, umbrella. yeah, because that was more where they were at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, very little metal either. Yeah, not raging probably hardcore recently, but um, but but probably more metal now. And I think, oh, what is the population of Iceland? What three hundred fifty thousand, something like that? Yeah, I think something like that. And you want per capita a huge percentage of that population all showed up when Rammstein came to Reykjavik. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but also like you think about New Zealand too, right? You think about a town like Dunedin 
And it's like, you know, every single person seems like they're in some sort of indie punk band. Yeah. Uh, again, it's a very loose definition of punk to me. You don't, no, you, no I, offense to Dunedin. It's a it's a a quiet but intellectual artsy college town. Yeah, basically, and kind of remote too on the south small, yeah. part of the South Island. Yeah, you know, you try to drive there, it would take you days, and you fly there, it'll take you hours. But um, and at one point, there was a group of people who were making stuff and using all kinds of different names. And sending it all to forced exposure because they knew it would either be carried or released on one of forced exposure's labels. <laughs> and eventually they caught on. I was like, okay, time's up with you guys now. <laughs> <laughs> the shell game's up. Um, yeah, you, yeah. So what do you think is the biggest scene per capita? Do you think it's Finland? I haven't a clue on that one at this point. I heard a story also that at one of these early shows, I think you said it in one of these punk book that Ian and Henry were shaving people's heads at the side of the stage when you guys played DC. And no, played in New York. Oh, we played in New York. They're doing that. Yeah. Cause the second time we went to New York where, um, you know, we still couldn't really handpick the bands that we got good ones both nights and stuff at the, uh, Irving Plaza, which sadly got eaten up by Live Nation years ago. So the fake dead Kennedys will play there, but I won't. And, uh, but um, yeah, by then the main outpost of West Coast hardcore, complete with what was then still called slam dancing and thrashing, the mosh term came out of New York City much later. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you can say it easier with a New York accent. Mush, mush, rather than thrash, you slam, you know. So mosh it is, but um, that's where the media was. And, but um, people mostly in in different places, they, um, they it hadn't, hardcore hadn't really hit yet because the Teen Idols EP barely came out. Minor Threat had made a demo that they were passing around to their friends. And I brought one home for DC and SOA's record hadn't come out yet. And Government Issue hadn't come out. None of that yet. And so I think they'd already done this at a Black Flag show where the DC punks came up. You know, the ones who were connected with teen idols and had been out West and knew what this shit was. And they were skaters and whatnot. And which would include Ian and Henry and several others. And so they came back up for us once they decided we were okay. And we played at the 930 Club and stuff. And um, actually, they'd seen us in San Francisco too. I forgot, but uh, when they were out with Teen Idols. But anyway, um, so the second of the two Irving Plaza shows, they showed up and blew everybody's minds. You know, the stage diving, the dancing, the, uh, you know, oh, you want your head shaved like ours? Come over here. And people were doing it. You know, you couldn't get as many as you could with dirt from potted plants. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was it was kind of a life changing thing for a lot of people. And then New York still had this age-restricted scene, too. Thus, so many dull bands when we first went there in 1979 and the good ones had already gone further up on the further up on the evolutionary scale and, you know, major labels and beyond and whatnot was left in the CBGB maxes 
thing was a lot of the bands that weren't that good to begin with and stuff so oh yeah you're well you're opening for this band called voodoo shoes at max's i mean the singer is a sister of somebody in blondie therefore they're headlining and that was the scene and it was partly because it was age restricted and so then we were demanding all ages shows, not having that much luck. Irving Plaza wasn't totally all ages either. And if Irving Plaza had known the ages of Ian and Henry and the DC people, they would have thrown them out, but we got them in. We I think we haven't got them in through the back door, but um, basically uh, it was still so rigid that we were, uh, you, we were dissed in the New York music press for being a gimmick because we were doing an all ages show in New York City. You know, what a dumb gimmick. They got to resort to dumb gimmicks. Get anybody to see you. And people review reviews, oh yeah, there used to be somebody who do this front thing and good, like the dictators or the, you know, the one time this Nazi dog guy came through the vile tones. He was the real deal. But this jello guy, no, they didn't see me as scary at all. <laughs> Although the audience had other ideas. Yeah. And none more so than the one all ages show we did at that Bonds Casino place where the Clash did that residency later, where the stage was way too goddamn high for these kind of shows and this and they hated that place. Terrible sound. But and we had to go on at noon. And their gimmick was kid day show. No one admitted without kid. But at least enough people saw through that that it was packed to the back wall with a lot of young people and even though i was barely awake from having to get up so early and you know powered through it and everything didn't think we were very good because we were all half asleep but the crowd had never seen anything like this before and you know sure there was also budding punk in connecticut and new jersey but they didn't get to see it but that one show, they did. And so for years after that, even grunge era bands and stuff, oh yeah, I saw that show at Bonds, the underage one, the all ages one, that was what made me want to start a band. And now I got this band. And so it did for all kinds of people what the Ramones in Denver in spring of 77 did to me and Joseph Pope who started Angst and the people did the Wax Tracks label and the guys who moved to New York and called them, changed their name to the Nails and had that 88 lines about 44 women's song. And Al Jorgensen claims he was there, but none of us knew him at the time. <laughs> so um, yeah, and the Ramones, I think were conscious they were doing that all over the country if not the world. So they were accessible. The very fact that I could actually talk to a rock star was such a shock to me and stuff. And, uh, you know, so then I went out and brought my albums the second night and they signed my albums and all that. I'd never asked anybody for that before and stuff, which is, you know, why, unless it's one of the non-alternative tentacles ones from later, I'll, you know, I'll sign stuff for people because I remember how much that meant to me when the Ramones signed my albums. Were you into that no way stuff that was happening like prior to going to New York? Um, yeah, a lot. I, I guess no New York had already come out and you couldn't find those bands anywhere at that point, in part because there was another really obnoxious concept club there called the Mud Club. 
And that was run like Studio 54, where there was a rope, there was a line, and the door people would go look up and down the line and pick who they thought looked right to let in at that particular time, who was cool enough to come in and other people didn't get to go in. And people went there for disco shit and everything else. And occasionally bands would play, but they wouldn't announce who was going to play. Yeah. And so well, I was staying in New York for about 79. I was getting disgusted with what that scene had turned in. Oh, yeah. Did you hear DNA played the Mud Club last night? So <laughs> what an elitist piece of shit way to do things. And that was what the no wave bands were doing by then. It kind of feels like the Mass Club was a little bit like that, too. Like, you hear the stories about the Mass Club, is, and it was like, you know, obviously it wasn't elitist in the same sort of way, but it was like kind of like a secret society. And then sort of the next wave of hardcore being led by, you know, yourselves and, and Black Flag and DOA, it's a lot more populist. It's a lot more like about bringing Yeah, you're kind of splitting in. things apart and leaving out any history in the middle. Go for it. Let's, let's flesh it I out. I mean, they, to, to do, and I'm not going to just talk about old stuff for this whole interview. But um, you picked the wrong podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, the mask did not last very long. It spawned some of the most amazing music you will ever see or hear came out of there. Mm -hmm. But it didn't last very long. And so then there was bigger and smaller venues. Eventually, the whiskey would start booking some of the bands. And there were some other ones whose name I can't remember. I went to a show. God, what was it? I was on La I think it was on La Brea. What was the name of that place? And then X played, which people weren't expecting and stuff, and some other and some other people they were. Then the LAPD stormed the place, and I had to hide up by the upstairs somewhere near the ceiling for two or three hours, if I recall, before it was finally clear to come back. Wild shit. Not all of it good. No. And there were several police massacres. Yeah. Two or three of which involve, well, three at least involved dead Kennedys as well. No, it feels like you you had to deal with a lot of violence. Like, I know you talked about being stabbed at one point, too, at the on-Broadway, right? Like, yeah, it, yeah. It feels like, um, you know, by being so open and by being so accessible, like you're saying, like, you also have to deal with the fact that there are a lot of very unhinged people that are are drawn to this thing. Sometimes. Well, Nazi punks fuck off was originally written about people who were acting like a bunch of goons and Nazis at the shows, mm -hmm. you know, jumping off the stage and aiming and punching somebody in the back of the head and running away. And, you know, it was getting bad for a while. And somebody who was either then or would soon be in social unrest came up to me and he's maybe going to say anything about this. We don't want to be like LA. And so then Nazi Punks Fuck Off was debuted at that very venue at the very next show. And all those people were there because the Circle Jerks were playing before we did. You know, their Bay Area debut, if I'm not mistaken. And then, um, uh, then I debuted the song and one of those people hopped up on stage and they had a white power shirt on with a swastika on it. And... If anybody in that crowd was wondering what the fuck I was talking about and taking issue with and felt did not belong in our scene, there it was for all to see. Mm -hmm. And some of those people didn't really turn up or do the same kind of shit after that, while others who really did have Nazi ideology came out of the closet. Yeah. And then it got violent in a different way.
You also had to deal with that on, in Europe too, right? Like in England, Nazi organized Nazi shit, right? That was one show, and it was the Br- British movement people in cahoots with the exploited who did it. Wow. Yeah. Waddy didn't bother showing up himself, but our stage guy recognized the others, you know, attacking people along with the British movement goons as the exploited's road crew because he knew them all. And hey, what are you doing? It's me, Mick, wham, in the face. You know, and he really described me later who all those people were and stuff. The British movement was like people who thought the National Front, the original British National Front, weren't violent enough. You know, they were a little more kind of wanting to be the Ku Klux Klan or something. And um, so, uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was in Leicester. That was a really ugly, ugly evening. Dave MDC was shoved off the stage from behind before we played and they opened up a you know a place on the floor so he hit bottom and hit the floor then they all kicked him so wow. off to the hospital he went yeah and then we played anyway for everybody else but it had to be like muhammad ali kind of floating and dancing around the stages as they took swings at me when they got on stage and they never got me but then finally mick mcgee the singer for the british band called mayhem who did the riot city EPs and stuff. Um, I still know him. And he pulled me aside before the encore, Jello, whatever you do, I know how badly you want to play Nazi punks, fuck off. Whatever you do, don't do it, or a lot of people are going to get hurt. Those British movement guys have planned for that. You can tell they're waiting for it. So we didn't do it. Yeah. Well, that's one of those things where, it, it, you know, people would have died you know there, there would have been stabbings there were stabbings that shows there right? no it would have been all fists but these people knew how to fight um one thing i've always you know and that's why i was kind of surprised that earlier when you're like oh, that's a very broad definition of punk you always seem to have a fairly broad definition of punk or like do you not consider like what like when you did a show with like i saw a flyer mojo nixon seven seconds and frank in the dead kennedys like when you're putting on a show like that do you look at that as being a punk show or do you look at that as just being a bunch of different music together? On a no, show? it's a show. And that was put together by the students at University of California at Davis. It was their choice of who they wanted. And I'd heard the name Mojo Nixon, but didn't know his music. And um, I'd crossed paths with Frank before when she was the singer in Catholic or the guitar player in Catholic Discipline. And they stayed at our place before a show at the Deaf Club. And she was Frankie at that point. But, uh, you know, and, and a lot of the crowd booed her a lot. But she powered through and I felt horrible for her. But she was kind of she knew, you know, she was doing something that, you know, this was going to happen early on. And um, and then I think Mojo came out next and a lot of people liked him. Thought, oh, yeah, this is the college humor guy. You know, stuff in Martha's Muffin, MTV, get away from me, blah, blah, blah. Okay, and this is kind of as far as he goes. But uh, we hit it off, and he mentioned he'd lived in Colorado for a while before he came, went down to San Diego. And he, he did indeed have another band, I can't remember the name of, in Denver, where they were trying to be The Clash. Whoa. Mojo went through a phase where he really, really, really dug the clash. Well, yeah, I went to London for a while just looking for Joe Strummer, but I never found him and I came home. <laughs> and another time, and this is this is a good illustration of the metabolism of that guy. 
you know, he and a friend were riding their bicycles across the United States and going to bars by night. And I think it was in New Orleans, the concept of Mojo Nixon was hatched on the bike trip. Amazing. And then, and then the engineer on our album later with Mojo carrying on in another room and what, and I looked at me like, he'd done a lot of work, not just with Willie Nelson, but with a butthole surfers and other. And he said, you know, I can tell the difference between Paul Leary and Paul Walthall. And then he looks at Mojo. I don't think there's any Kirby McMillan left. Eventually, Colorado seems to catch up with you, particularly Denver. Like, in it's it's produces some of the most interesting, weird punk bands. You know, like thinking about your funeral, thinking about like um, uh, Frantics. You know, like or Vegas Boulder too. Like, you know, it just feels like there's a. It, it produces some really esoteric, weird bands. Well, a little bit earlier in that Rocky Mountain Low comp. You know, you'll notice that a lot of the people on there, they look like hippies. They're this, they're that. And it was just, you know, the local weird people doing whatever they wanted that may or may not have sounded punk at all. But the only place they could be allowed to play if they even played live was at the occasional so-called punk show. Mm. And I think that was true with a lot of places. I mean, the ones in L.A., of course, grew into working bands in many cases where that same scene would wind up spawning Wall of Voodoo and the Suburban Lawns and Gun Club and many other things. Whereas in the greater Denver area, that was as far as it got. And um, there was even a couple records, there's songs from off the on Rocky Mountain Low, and I never knew those records or those bands existed. It's a it's an amazing scene. One of the other things Uh-oh. that like moon unit attack, moon unit Hello. attack, moon unit. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to talk to you about uh, speaking of moon unit. What was it like hanging out with Zappa? Um, one of the few silver linings of that whole fucking ordeal of being the Tipper Gore's guinea pig with that obscenity trial, which kind of drained a year and a half out of my life, you know, doing tons and tons of interviews, trying to expose what they were really up to, as well as shitting bricks that if I got convicted, the whole industry would go down and stuff. And uh, it turned out it was a little bit of an overreaction, although I will still, you know, snarl at my defense attorney to this day for not telling me till the day before I was supposed to testify that he never intended to have me testify. But he wanted me to think that I was going to because otherwise I wouldn't like tip the prosecutor in public that I wasn't going to and stuff like that. I could keep a secret better than that. But uh, anyway, um, roommate of mine at the time, Suzanne Stefanik, who lived downstairs, she was a working journalist who was doing music stuff in the Bay Area mainly, but also muckraking. And she was researching Tipper Gore and the Parents Music Resource Center, the PMRC. And coming to me every other day was sky is falling voice. Look at this I found out. of. Look at these fundamentalist Christians are connected with. I'm going, yeah, yeah, Suzanne, I'm not surprised, blah, 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 blah. And then suddenly the police stormed my house, LAPD, no less, 440 miles out of their jurisdiction. And um, they also 
went through her stuff and went straight for her PMRC file, strewed it everywhere and may have taken some, I don't know. They searched the cat box too. I don't know what they thought they were gonna find there. They said they were looking for harmful matter. They go, what are all those pictures of mixing kids on milk cards doing on your kitchen wall? Do you know where they are? Oh no, that's somebody who doesn't live here, cut those out and collected them. We just left them up. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> And, um, and 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 they're not the ones that were blown up on on walking talking milk cartons later when Guar did that song Have You Seen Me, where the answer to where all the milk carton kids went was that Guar was eating them and stuff. Of course, and uh, what a fun concept they've <laughs> the amount of fun they've been able to have with that band. But anyway, so um, the day after the arrest was announced. And I probably would have said, okay, fine me, give me the, I'll pay the $100 fine and let me go. That's probably what's going to happen. But then my legal guy said, no, you don't understand. CBS is calling me, CNN is calling me. Oh shit, I'm Tipper Pigeon. All Tippers, all right, this is fucking war. And because of Suzanne, I already knew a lot of the ins and outs of who those people were, how directly connected they were with Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and worse, a lot of anti-Semites involved. And what, and a lot of, you know, even the original thing, the rating system, the tipper and her main partner, Susan Baker, a holy roller speaking tongues wife of that evil gangster, James Baker, who was Daddy Bush's secretary of state as well as helping go to Florida and fix the 2000 election to make sure the Bush son won and stuff. Horrible guy. Anyway, his wife was Susan Baker, and she was also on the board of Focus on the Family. To this day, one of the leading religious right hate groups in this country. So I had things to offer, and it was the only time a lot of these people would ever talk to me at all. So if I could get this stuff in where they weren't printing that this stuff was going on for anybody else, then that was the ma- a major part of my job. And the day of the arrest or the day after, since Suzanne had already called Frank about PMRC and other stuff as a working journalist, he called our phone, our, you know, when people had one landline phone and you know, here, Frank's on the phone. <laughs> And um, he was kind of sussing me out to make sure it wasn't a Sid Vicious or a Motley Crue situation, which I'm sure he had good reason to worry about. But, you know, we talked to him and said, he just said, remember, you are the victim. And whatever you do, do it with dignity. Very good advice. Yeah. I'd already known to wear suit and tie on TV talk shows from when I ran for mayor and stuff. So the mayor suit came back out and whatnot. So I could like try to pass myself off as a respectable citizen. And, you know, if some, you know, uninformed housewife is thinking about putting their kid in a mental hospital because they listen to my band or Black Sabbath or whatever, um, maybe seeing me this way instead of what they expected might, and talking like a rational adult, might keep their kid out of a mental hospital. You know, that was my logic there. I mean, Mike Muir of Suicidal Tendencies was also on the Phil Donahue one as was Luther Campbell and the religious fanatic who got him busted for the Two Life Crew album. And um, Muir took issue with my wearing a suit, 
But then later, some of the studio audience who clearly were like grandmas or housewives or whatever, who the thrill of their life was to be in a Phil Donahue audience or whatever. I don't know. You made a lot of sense. But that other young man really frightened me. It's like, yeah, it's good to frighten some people, but not those people. You know, you would think with that song institutionalized, they would know what happens to people like that. And anything you can do to prevent it, even disguising yourself as a respectable citizen on TV, should be done. So, but basically back, back to Frank then, um, you know, so then uh, we're on some kind of a panel in LA. I meet him and stuff. That picture got taken. And then afterwards, oh, you want to come over tomorrow? Okay, sure. And so eventually I found the house and come in and he sits me down in the basement where the room off to the right is a studio where he was working till he came out to let me in and stuff. And watch this. And he pops in a videotape of a Christian aerobics show. One, two, 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 three, two, praise the Lord. And the bustiest of all the Christians is right in the front with stripy leotards. One, two, 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 three, two, praise the Lord. And so we just exchange horror stories about, you know, Christian extremists and police state stuff that Reagan and crew were up to and everything else. And the one thing he said at one point after Reagan was, you know, bombing Libya and there were worries of a war and stuff that they're on CNN they had an interview with some small town mayor or something in Louisiana saying that as far as he knew, one of the concentration camps they were going to put people in when we went and invaded Libya and people protest and where they were going to put them was going to be in his town. And he was really excited about how it was going to bring more income in town. And then Frank said, and two days later, that story was totally off the air, gone. That's the kind of stuff that... Uh, you know, Frank had. I mean, sadly, maybe it was a little shyer and thing of it. Talk to him about some other early areas of music that meant a lot to him. Because I was just starting to get into uh, rhythm and blues and stuff, which, of course, Frank knows a lot about from his days as a house engineer for under Paul Buff for the original sound studios. It's amazing also like that Oprah appearance, like since we're out the Donahue one, the Oprah appearance with like you, I think D Snyder's on it and Ice T's with you too. No D Snyder, just Ice no, T. Just Ice T. But both you guys just I've like, never met D Snyder, I don't think. But he was he was also another person they kind of went after too. No, that. he went after them too. Remember, he the, there was a major label blackout on anybody going to Congress to testify against this horrible agenda of Tipper Gore and Susan Baker and the other society ladies. And it turned out every single expert witness they called was another preacher. And their original thing, they wanted a much more detailed rating sticker. First of all, major labels should quote, reassess the contracts of artists who are, you know, telling kids to worship the devil or kill themselves or advocating crime, whatever. But they wanted a rating system flagging stuff like that as well as you know homosexuality and suicide even if it was an anti-suicide song which ozzy's suicide solution is yeah yeah so um that's how bigoted they were so when gay activists you know several years later were yelling at me as a green party guy who'd worked on you know campaign for ralph nader at times and stuff at the big rallies um 
you know, he was saying it was my, it was, it was our fault that Bush got in instead of Gore. And I'm like, you don't know just how rapidly homophobic the, the vice president's wife and probably the rest of them are, do you? Then we leave and told them what that rating was. And then they kind of shut up after that. Well, that's, they picked the wrong guys to go after, really, because like, you know, let's say they had gone after El Duce and Gigi Allen. You know, I think it would have been a very different outcome. I mean, you know, the, it, the, the L.A. city, the LADA's office didn't know who they were. Gigi Allen, I'm not sure, was quite on everybody's radar screen yet, actually. And um, I mean, he was putting stuff out, but he hadn't like blown up to the degree that he ever did nationally and th- say he was going to kill himself on stage. And that made him a lot better known and uh, whatnot. So um, and mentors were just like a, a smaller club band. I, I think they got it. They, they went after them a little bit later. But there was another panel I did with Frank where somebody from the other side was, well, didn't you once say bend down and smell my anal vapors? <laughs> the crowd, of course, is chuckling and everything. No, that was actually a group called Mentor, you know, the Mentors, and corrected the guy. <laughs> did you ever meet H.R. Geiger? Yes. Was he aware of the whole controversy, how it blown up? Like, was Oh, he had of... to be, yeah, because yeah. there was a lot of talk about him bringing him in to testify. And then his manager slash agent in New York, who remained a good friend of mine after that, Les Barony said, no, you don't want him coming over here and testifying. It will backfire. And so then he helped recruit art experts and expert witnesses to testify instead. And he kept very close track of it. Yeah. And to the point where then finally Giger does come to America for a, uh, a uh, gallery exhibit uh, Upper West Side in some new posh gallery, several floors up in a building in uh, New York. And so Les flew me out so we could meet and stuff, which I think Giger wanted to too. Yeah. And uh it was also the same week as the CMJ convention, College Music Journal. So there are all kinds of bands in town. And it was also timed with the release of a new Carcass album, the one with the Giger sculpture on the cover, which was actually a sculpture promoting peace and stuff. Giger had stopped doing the airbrush paintings by then. And um, so they were in town. I didn't get to see their show, but... Um, Basically, what had been going on was Giger was having terrible trouble with the guy who ran this gallery, who took the original painting that was on Frankenchrist, which is not titled Penis Landscape, it's Landscape Roman numeral 20, Where Are We Going?, which is much closer to the reason I put it with the album in the first place, because to me, that showed Reagan America better than anything else I'd ever seen. It captured it and mm-hmm. stuff. So uh, that's why I wanted to use it. Originally, I wanted it on the outside cover, a gatefold where you open it up and there's those Shriners on the inside and nothing but Frankenchrist written anywhere. <laughs> and that didn't fly. And suddenly we finally get the rights. I'm so excited. And the other guys in the band are all freaking out. We didn't think we were actually going to use it. <laughs> what not? And the source of each of their hangups was disturbing in their own way for this day. I'm not going to go into those, but uh, Bo, it wound up being inside as a compromise. The Shriners got on the outside. 
And they're so blurry because Newsweek, who we got the rights to in writing, um, didn't have the negative anymore. Oh, really? So we had to use the stuff I'd cut out of their bicentennial issue of the magazine. And just blow it up. Instead. Yeah, because I used to have tons and tons of little pictures all over my bedroom wall where back in the hippie days we could smoke weed and just trip out on how ridiculous everything and everyone was. You don't see presidents caught in awkward moments like now, like you did then. Mm. And, And there was Nixon and Ford to play with on that one. I mean, the one of Tricky Dick merrily playing a piano, grinning enthusiastically with that scary Nixon face at a room of Chinese school children who are all crying and stuff. I mean, you can't. I don't that was one of John Greenway's. I don't even have that one, but uh, you know, just stuff like that. Yeah. And one that blew everybody's mind was that Shriner picture. Yeah. So then I finally I moved out. I had to cut all the pictures down. And I brought eventually I brought them out. And then when it was time to do art for fresh fruit, I thought we can't just have an album cover. We gotta go the extra mile. Ah, I know. What if crass was funny? And so I pulled out a lot of those pictures and newer ones I had cut out to make a new wall, but I was a renter, so I never started making the new wall and just made the fresh fruit poster, but the Shriners didn't get in. They'd already been on a dead Kennedy flyer, which I think was the same one that debuted the phrase fresh fruit for rotting vegetables. I don't know. I have to look, but um, yeah. So, so uh that was where a lot of those pictures came from. That's amazing. Stuff. So back to Frankenchrist and Giger, he was having trouble with his gallery guy. He was shutting a bunch of these sexually explicit ones all in one room he could lock when important people were there who might actually drop 50 grand on a Giger original or something. Yeah. Who knows how much those might go for now if he had any ever got sold. But, you know, mostly he held on to them and now they're in the Giger Museum in Gruyere and the French side of Switzerland you know, the same town that the cheese is known for. And up on the hill is a carefully preserved little medieval town, which is all gift shops and cheese outlets and a restaurant and whatnot. And then there's this castle a little bit further up and a bigger one further up from that. And the smaller one that's on both sides and the cobblestone goes in between, that's Giger's buildings, where the museum that the town did not want. They didn't want it. Oh, God, no. Not only was he a German speaker and not a French speaker, but this was going to scare everybody away. And look what it's going to make our town look like. They wouldn't let him put up the portcullis across the way that he wanted to make his own version of one of those, which would have been amazing. And he had to reduce the size of the sculpture outside and whatnot. But the museum finally launched. But um, in New York, um, this was a really bad situation going on. And then it's time for uh, the opening. And here's this miserable gallery guy who obviously was a guy with money, but just a miserable disposition and outlook and more arguments with Giger about whether that door stays open or closed or whatever. And then Giger got one of those intricately carved, you know, metal masks he made. He didn't make very many, maybe even only one. I don't know. But he brought that with him and he put it on and hid behind the door that went into the large room of the gallery itself. And when important people walked in, ah, 
and stuff. And that's how he was entertaining himself. It was two rooms. There was a Giga room and an R. Crumb room next door, <laughs> which I never got to go into because of what was going, all this stuff going on in the Giga part and things. You know, people I knew were talking to people. And then Timothy Leary showed up and pulled me into that very room that had Frank and Christ and the other stuff in it. And then he shuts the door. Jello. What are we going to do about Al, Al Jorgensen? He's doing way too many drugs. <laughs> wow. Because Al and Leary were close. I think Al lived with him for a year or two. So he sees him as kind of a mentor figure in some ways to this day. You know, clearly, they clearly really loved each other. But anyway, yeah. um, so that he was, you're asking me, Tim? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Then a new argument erupts because there were all these metal people and carcass fans because the CMJ all showing up at the gallery to see Giger's work and the ones who actually knew what it was and stuff. And the way they looked alone was freaking out. The owner finally, okay, from now on, $25 just to get on the elevator and come up here. Giger flips on him. They're in a shouting match. Who walks in in full costume but Guar? At which point that owner fled his own gallery and ran home and probably hid under the bed the rest of the night. Oh, that's amazing. Giger was so happy to see Guar. His mood just brightened in seconds. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Jell, I've kept you forever, and I could talk to you for a lifetime. Would you come back and do a part three at some point? I don't know. Maybe we didn't even get to the new album yet, did we? Don't worry. That's why I do I do wraparounds to make sure I plug the new record and I talk all about the new record and, and stuff okay. like that. Do, do not worry. It'll be... Uh, we better do, I will a, make sure better that do we... a little bit of that. Okay, let's, let's talk about the new record. Like, yeah, like, so what... You know, I like, I think last time we spoke was a few years ago where we were kind of in the midst of... Well, I think we we're just at the arrival of the last administration. And now here we are kind of as it's exiting. And uh, I just actually, yeah. What's, what's your kind of barometer on, on the state of the world now versus, you know, five years ago, four well, years ago. I mean, ago. the album is called tea party revenge porn for a reason. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, if anything, it was meant to not to be a Trump album per se, but about all the fascist stuff and what's causing it and the other things going on, like what I call climate collapse and not climate change. That's the last big gulp song that's on there and all. Um, that, but instead of kind of being a little bit dated, which I knew it wouldn't be anyway, but, but now a lot of what's been said on that album goes double, triple, 25 mm -hmm. times more than it even did in the fall. I mean, the vinyl should finally arrive any day and the CDs after that. But I dropped the album as an online release last October just to make sure it got out there before election day. So people got the lyrics, they got the music, but both Tea Party Revenge Porn, the song and Satan's Comb Over, which opens the album, were written before the Trumpsies, T-R-U-M-P-Z-I-S, stole the 2016 election. I mean, they have a lot of nerve to be bitching about vote fraud 
when their vote fraud is what gave us two terms of George W. Bush when he lost both those elections. Trump loses in 2016 and he's president anyway and down ballot because of monkeying with the ballots under the interstate cross-check program, which did way more damage than Putin ever did for Jim Crow 2.0 and all that. That's documented in a film documentary called The Best Democracy Money Can Buy by Greg Pallast, the guy who wrote the book on the same with the same title about how W stole 2000 and monkeyed with the voter database online and people weren't allowed to vote if they were black and convicted of a felony four years afterwards. Mm. You can't vote, you're convicted mm. felon. Yeah, but my church is right down there. I'm a minister, I live here. Ah, but you were convicted of a felony in 2004. You can't vote. And that was 2000. Yeah. That kind yeah, of stuff. And they got away with it and Gore didn't fight it like he could have. So, um, and neither did John Kerry, making me wonder how much of the fix was in anyway. Same with Hillary Clinton, who never uttered a peep about the interstate cross-check program, nor does corporate McNews, even supposed liberal corporate McNews. I mean, the only one who ever had Greg Pallast on to explain what that was after 2016 was Joy Reid, who now finally has her own hour on MSNBC. But who knows if she'll have him on again. After all, MSNBC is owned by Comcast. Rachel Maddow's boss is Comcast. And, and you have to see all that through that lens. But anyway... They have a lot of nerve bitching about stolen elections because Crosscheck also skewed the whole ballot. It wasn't just president, but all these Tea Party crackpots like Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, who's in the news now for blaming Antifa for the Capitol riots and stuff. You know, just how what a wingnut he is. He was supposed to lose overwhelmingly for his second term in 2016. Instead, he got in, as did the Pennsylvania one, the North Carolina one, and others, just in time to put three more right-wing extremists on the Supreme Court. So it wasn't just the loss of President Hillary Clinton, which would have been a mixed bag, to put it mildly, but obviously not nearly as insane as Trump. But... Um, that's how, how much damage the real vote fraud has done and is continuing to do. They're already, the Republican legislatures who are still in because of all these vote frauds, the state legislatures in place like Georgia and Texas and Michigan, even though Michigan has a Democratic governor, things are gerrymandered so bad there that Democrats running for the legislature, if you measure them all numerically statewide, way more people are voting for them because of the way they've gerrymandered the districts, the state house and the state senate are overwhelmingly Republican, as is some of the other offices. And, and thus, um, so Governor Gretchen Whitmer has a hell of a time getting anything decent passed. And so, but so basically that, that's how much damage is done with the real vote fraud. And so Satan's, and so Satan's comb over it's the effect. It's about the effect. And the, thus, I didn't even know if Trump was going to win or lose. He'd already had a horrible effect on bringing all these racists and bigots out of the closet. And suddenly the militia nuts are showing up with machine guns at his rallies and stuff and not getting arrested for it. 
and things. And uh, so that, that, you know, that, and that's the, uh, you know, that's what I call in the, in the Tea Party Revenge Porn song, the red, white, and blue brown shirts. And uh, of course the Tea Party scam goes clear back to uh, 2009 when they started putting together this fake grassroots thing to maul and heckle anybody who was trying to promote health care reform for President Obama. I don't want no government taken away by Social Security, but the government is Social Security. No, it's not. And uh, make America great again. You know, somebody has to stand up for the stupid, God damn it. And uh, so um, that song almost wrote itself just by quoting those people. But yeah. uh, so Satan's come over effect. It didn't really start in America in mass. For that, you got to look like look at the National Front in France and um, Brexit. A more direct one to what happened finally people actually finally saw it in the right numbers when they attacked the Capitol building. And for some reason it was resolved ahead of time by the militia Nazis not to bring the machine guns and to come without guns. Although a lot of them had pistols anyway. And what, why they did that? I don't know, but um, I'm glad they didn't at least this time, but maybe next time we won't be so lucky quote unquote, but basically, um, Oh, where, oh, but the one most like that, who is now kind of on the wane, at least for now, happened in Greece. Ever heard of the Golden Dawn? Absolutely. You know, not only are they, they disgracing one of the greatest 60s Texas psych bands ever by using that same name, but... Um, from the get-go, they were like going into neighborhoods in Athens where a lot of immigrant-owned businesses were, trashing the businesses and threatening the lives of the owner. You either get out and leave your property, never come back, or we will kill you. And we will kill your family too. And we can, because a lot of Golden Dawn members were cops and military officers who were younger military recruits when that junta ran Greece late 60s, 70s, I think into the 80s, even a little bit, I can't remember. You know, it was those same people. And now, and bikers were involved too. And now they'd found something, you know, an umbrella and an ideology. A friend of mine who was kind of showing me the where he lived when I went to the island of Crete and stuff, he said, oh yeah, the other day, somebody came to my desk where I was working and said, hi, I'm from the Golden Dawn. You've been seen at protests against us, haven't you? If you keep up, we're going to get you. That's the kind of stuff yeah. they were doing. And yeah. so Golden Dawn type stuff on an American size scale. And there's claims both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers number in the tens of thousands now. And Oath Keepers are almost entirely active and ex-military and active and ex-cops who know their weapons and know how to fight. And get away with murder if they need to and stuff. Mm -hmm. So at least I'm glad they finally shined a light on the Oath Keepers. They weren't just weren't talking about them. I mean, I saw a great big billboard above the whole town in 29 Palms out in the California desert near Joshua Tree. And there's a great big marine base there. And it shows a soldier in uniform, dress uniform, looking just a little like a marine uniform. And it was a recruiting billboard for the Oath Keepers. And I was like, wow. oh, like an ad for yeah, him. a great big ad for the whole town to see. Holy shit. Why I didn't take a picture of that is I beyond me, but I just didn't. 
Yeah. People didn't believe it's, me about that stuff. Maybe they will now. Yeah, no, well, it's it's stuff that, you know, as you say, you've been kind of like, you know, from dealing with the British movement and stuff, you like you've seen this stuff. This stuff has existed, but it just feels like it's it's almost like that election of that Aust- the Austrian president in the early 2000s was like kind of a turning point in Europe where it started in Europe and now obviously it's here where open fascism is just yeah, that rise. was bubbling under in a lot of places in Holland, and they had somebody like that get elected at Denmark at one point. Of course, the Le Pens and the National mm-hmm. Front, or whatever they call themselves now, um, that's Satan's come over. And the worst yeah. part of it is, you know, <laughs> if you like France or Brexit, you'll love the Philippines. With Duterte, who has the blood of at least 10, some people say now 20,000 on his hands, encouraging people to form their own death squads and kill their neighbors on the excuse that the neighbor's a drug dealer. And a lot of people getting killed by their neighbors aren't drug dealers at all. They're just people who have neighbors who have a gun who don't like them. And, and, And then, of course, there's Bolsonaro in Brazil, who, again, is worse than Trump by a goodly amount. And, you know, they, they, there's talk of trying to make destroying things like the Amazon rainforest some kind of violation of international laws. So they can try and get him before the world court. I don't know how quickly yeah. that's going to move, but I think it's an interesting idea. Yeah, no. I, 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 but that, that's Satan's comb over. And my point being, my God, why is this all happening at once in so many places? Yeah. And yeah. it can't just be movements of migrants and things like that it's also many of whom who came from syria trying to get into europe it wasn't just the war the war itself was caused by a hellacious drought that's still going on what happened in syria one of the main root causes is actually climate collapse they're not telling people that here and uh so it's basically why all over the world why at once so i guess our our overlords and corporations and whatnot just decided, you know, we've had enough of this Occupy, this Green Party stuff, these people getting elected who are actually trying to tax us or tell us what to do with the environment. You know, we need to crush them. Yeah. And that's that's what they're trying to do. I mean, now yeah, it's into another too. generation who wasn't even alive then who in America, who is not just, oh, we got to reverse the 60s. Oh, those people are so horrible in the 60s. They just want, don't just want to wipe out the culture and the consciousness so that people don't remember all that stuff and kind of think maybe you should try that again. They want revenge. You know, Dick yeah. Cheney is a really good example of that. Steve Bannon, if you see his documentaries, he's a really good example of that. I got the new song today, the Rush Limbaugh song. Oh, yeah, yeah. We we waited on that because it didn't really fit on the album. It's called Blunder Blubber. Yeah. And uh, so um, I just said, okay, rumor has it he may not be with us much longer. I'm just going to sit on this and release it the day he dies and just celebrate that. Because one of the first really bad outbreaks of sin symptoms of Satan's comb over was him. 
know, even back late eighties, then he gets more popular in the Clinton era as Clinton himself helps deregulate media ownership laws and corporate merger stuff and no more fairness doctrines. So you have to let the other side reply and stuff like they used to have. Um, that law was renewed in the late eighties, but Reagan vetoed it. So we lost it. It was enacted during the depression in the 1930s to curtail people like Father Coughlin, who were hate radio of the time, which had the disproportionate impact because TV wasn't really there yet. And uh, I don't know if he was openly pro-Hitler or just pro-fascism, but uh, he was bad stuff. And that stuff didn't come back until the Fairness Doctrine died. And almost overnight, Rush Limbaugh got on the air got to do the kind of commentary he wanted to do and it grew and grew and grew and I wrote the song during the Clinton era but I didn't have a band right then a full-time band doing a lot of spoken word and lard and tumor circus and the stuff I did with DOA no means no and later mojo but it was just not I didn't have an outlet for it so I just let it sit and then thought you know it might be time to bring this out because now he may not be quite as much in the forefront of this, but now there are hundreds of other Rush Limbaugh's creating more Rush Limbaugh's or ditto heads as he called them. And this all relates to the corporate takeover of news networks and dumbing it down for all right wing all the time. So people won't threaten them, you know, and the damage done. So at all, all, Always in the song, you know, the Limbaugh's are forced to watch their own shows and listen to their own shows while tied to, bed, tied to beds of nails. That was always part of the song as Blunder Blubber dies. But uh, so I thought it was a good time to put it out. It'll be a vinyl or a seven inch at some point when I decide what to do for a B-side and things. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's Blunder Blubber. And the other, thing, the other thing that tied in was for the first time ever, there's actual videos to go with this album too, which is all up along with my What Would Jello Do rant casts at the Alternative Tentacles YouTube channel. You know, I couldn't do the band and uh, I had to get back to rock, but I couldn't do the band and do the four-hour spoken word shows and put them together properly at the same time. So Spurk and Word kind of went by the wayside and then... Um, and, and so to keep keep a little keep a little active in that, that's why the what would Jello do rant casts were born. And um, if you haven't checked those out, you may find them interesting. There's almost fifty of them now, actually. Not all that long. Some I mean, some of them are like twenty minutes. Some of them are five. And then the one after George Floyd and all the protests, I wound up doing like a five or six part series. What happens when the police riot? because there was so much I knew about that, even from being a politically aware kid in the 60s and stuff, and the Chicago 7 conspiracy trial and the police then, and I just, you know, officer friendly didn't exist for me anymore, even though I was in elementary school, I was mad as hell. Mm. And <laughs> it never ended in my case. You know, I couldn't be Abby Hoffman, but that prankster spirit is still very much a driving force in what I like to do. Anytime you want to come back here, please know you're always welcome. Uh, because I'm stuck at home with, with COVID and everything, I'm doing more of these than I usually do and learning more about the podcast world. 
but whether I will always have time to keep doing the same ones when there's all these other ones too, <laughs> I don't know yet. That's okay. Well, but if you we shall see. If you find it, we will catch up in Toronto. Nardwar kept me on for six hours. Yeah, see, that's the thing, you know. Like, and after, <laughs> you know, this is probably like halfway between a Nardwar and something pleasant to do. You know, like I like to think I'm in the middle ground somewhere. <laughs> Oh, Nardwar is a friend, and it was mainly about weird records as well as getting to watch Nardwar on the screen freaking out whenever his side of the signal went bad, which happened repeatedly. I remember, actually, he did this one interview with you where you talked about the first hardcore record or first punk record ever, and it's some like really obscure Dutch group. I'm trying to remember what band you said. Maybe it's Dutch or some well, European. Oh, the, 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 the only 60s hardcore record. Yes. What record is that? The Sound of Imker. Sound of I-M-K-E-R, and the title is Train of Doomsday. That's amazing, yeah. It got reissued a few years ago by a short-lived label called Op Art, I think, Oh, that put out all these obscure Dutch picture sleeve singles from the 60s, and they did that one. Oh, amazing, amazing. And it's also, I, I heard it first on a, a compilation where there was Nuggets, and then there was Pebbles, and then other countries started doing their own, and the Dutch one that the Phillips label actually put out. It was a major label one called V-Lips. V-Lips, okay. V's and Victor hyphen Lips. Okay. Maybe Lips has another meaning in Dutch. I don't know, <laughs> but that's probably wouldn't be my first choice for a 60s comp name, but that's just me. But uh, starting off side two, they're like, what the hell is this song? That's awesome. I mean, one thing that might give you some clue is to kind of the, the train-like pile-driving nature of this song was it was also kind of the jumping off point, the musical inspiration for a song on Tea Party Revenge Porn called A Boring Day Is What I Need, mm -hmm. which I at least had in my mind, even the music before the digital age hit. And there's emails, there's texts, there's social media, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's that. So there's stuff you've been working on for years, right? Like you just keep ideas in your back pocket till you have the right project or the yeah, right song? Yeah, well, that's, there's too many for a back pocket. I mean, <laughs> if I, you know, sometimes every last lyric I've never used winds up on a floor in one room in alphabetical order so I can start, you know, thinking of what to do with them. And, you know, when I matched a piece of music with a really good idea for lyrics, then it's much more likely to actually get done. Yeah. Because yeah. there's all this music I haven't figured out what to do with, too, or haven't had time to finish the song. Because it's kind of down to the tough ones I haven't gotten done before at this point. So you really. Well, some of them are brand new, like Satan's Comb Over and Tea Party Revenge Porn. The music was new, too, as well as looks. And others have been kind of percolating for ages. I mean, the last big gulp, the, uh, the, the, the Climate Collapse song. You know, the main riff came into my head after I heard the Lime Spiders in Australia. And it just saved it. And eventually more parts came into my head. So then eventually I had a song. That's amazing. <laughs> and um, finally figured out what to do with it and stuff. And I originally wrote it as when the oil runs dry. And then now it looks like it's not going to run dry. So a lot of these older ones that I made and then never had an outlet for, if I use them at all, I got to completely rewrite them and go over the music with a fine tooth comb and improve them. Or there's parts, what did I want that for? Or, you know, where's the bridge? I didn't do a bridge. And the world keeps giving you more motivation to write songs too, right? So it's like never ending, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I mean, it's depressing how many ideas I have that I like that are never going to actually get done. Yeah. 
and that doesn't just include music, but um, so writing a book is way the fuck down the list, people. I'm sorry. I want you to do a radio show where you just play records. Like someone's got like serious or someone's got to give you like a, a radio show. Just play. Mojo all tried to get me on serious a long time ago. And then fine. He was really hopeful. Then I find a message on my landline answering machine. I can't believe it. They don't want you at all. They were so hostile. Just the minute I brought up your name, that woman, that she's she been out of rehab. She's changed. She's like, she has no sense of humor anymore. Fuck. <laughs> that was the word I got from Mojo. And another friend tried to get a Stevie Van Zandt, who'd supported the No More Censorship Defense Fund during the Frankenchrist trial, see if he could get me up through there. No. And then I cut a demo for their punk channel. No, it was actually their rival at the time that they merged with, XM, that I cut it for. No, it was serious. And then um, they, they had me like in this tiny little booth, this big and only doing voiceovers. That's how they make this stuff. So actually the live wheels of steel just wasn't going on at all. Even Underground Garage, there's a playlist of 1500 songs you get from Little Steven and that's all you can play. Cause they've got it all on a digital file and it's approved by Little Steven and stuff. You know, and I appreciate many things he's done over the years, but I guess if I talked to him and I wanted wheels of steel and I wanted a live audience, that would be the end of my application to work for the man on uh, Sirius. So we cut one for the punk channel and then they couldn't find digital versions of some of the songs. And then we yeah. never uploaded them because then the merger happened. I think that guy got laid off at oh. that point. And that was the end of that one. So, you know, I kind of want to do it the way I want to do it. That's what I want to hear. And with somebody like that, you, you know, you not only can, you know, pay some bills off of it, but then they pay the bills when, you know, BMI, ASCAP, or Harry Fox or whatever comes after him wanting the broadcast royalties and stuff. Yeah. Which, you know, if you just put stuff up on the net and make your own broadcast, you sometimes get sued. Yeah. For stuff like that, unfortunately. Because the other idea was just to have an alternative tentacles one every once in a while. Because um, one or two people who work with the label from time to time have their own mixing board and DJ turntables and they're working DJs. We can just do different people down there at different times. But then at some point, you got to pay the piper, even though the broadcast is free. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I know what I'm going to do. I mean, the other option was, you know, God, if I was going to do that, maybe I could have a talk show too. And I could finally do things like, so Ralph Nader, what do you think of this song by Wesley Willis? But uh, <laughs> that may be only uh, another one of these weird little ideas I have that never goes anywhere. Well, if you ever do it, I'm going to be listening. I think that uh, radio show, you're going to be playing stuff that's not even on the internet. Like that's the thing that'd be amazing about it. You'd be playing records that no one has even thought about hearing. Yes. Hey, hey, Stevie, I got a cooler record collection than anybody on Underground Garage. Oh, I definitely. Really do. Oh, definitely. Therefore, you know, but the, but the stuff I was doing for the punk channel, I said, okay, it has to be my own roots and what led me to punk. That will be the debut. So we're going to have some Stooges, some Sonic, some Hawkwind. And because his stuff annoyed punk so much when he forced people to listen to him to get the audiences riled up before Dead Kennedys went on, we're going to put Hino on too. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, you know, consult that incredibly strange music book and all. Yep. So, well, uh, you, 
I think you sold a lot of Hino records with that incredibly strange music interview because that's where I certainly started buying. Well, Hino he records. apparently knows who I am now and what I've said about him. So, so I was saying, oh yeah, yeah, I rent music to those people now. You know, he knows who you are. You want to get your picture taken with Hino, and other people are saying, don't ever get your picture taken with him, even if he's apologized for some of his really right wing politics in the past then um, you still don't want to be seen with that guy. Enough people in Germany are mad at you about this already. <laughs> I mean, Maximum Rock and Roll got complaint letters from when I used to have a top 10 in there and always put Hino at the top just to annoy Tim and Jeff. You're better not understanding the lyrics, I guess. And then, well, uh, no. And then, um, and, and then finally I replaced Hino with Black Oak, Arkansas, and then rotated them after that. <laughs> and one time when they were all out of the room and I was still part of the radio show and I was playing a German hardcore set and they were all out of the room. So I put Hino on and it went out on an MRR show. And then Jeff Bale came back and, are you playing Hino? Fuck, shit, fuck, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I love seeing you. I love catching up. All right. Well, if I ever DJ in Toronto again or do a live music show, then uh, come say hi. Thank you, Jello, for coming on this show. And as you heard right there, Jello on the air had reservations about agreeing to come back for uh, a part two. But uh, he did off-air say, or part three, I should say, but he did off-air say that he would definitely come back for a part three. He was just uh, not in the greatest of moods, <laughs> which is great to hear him admit it afterwards. Um, all right, that's it. That was a fun, fun conversation. I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did listening back to it. Uh, well, well, next week, next week on the show, well, we got to keep these legends and icons coming. Next week on the show, a legendary filmmaker, a icon of you know, and one of the architects of queercore, a a pioneer, a uh, an inspiration, uh, just just a, a god. There's no other way to put it. Bruce LaBruce is going to be on the show, and this is a fun one. This is a really cool episode. We get into a lot of cool topics. This is someone I've wanted to have on the show since since I started this thing. Um, all right, that is it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Uh, Remember, as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids and we need to help trans people protect themselves. Go out there, read, get involved, get informed. Look at what's going on in the world. There's organizations that are doing a lot of really positive work in all sorts of places. Uh, contribute money if you can. Contribute your time if you can. Just and So just, you know, get involved, have empathy, and, and fuck fascism. Smash na Nazis. You know, that's... <laughs> They're jello talking about this shit. This is what punk has been about, you know, getting rid of Nazis since since day one. Even if it has to be within punk, you know? Even if it has to be within punk, sadly. Uh, make yourself uh, feel better by doing something creative. Do something. You don't have to share it with the whole world, you know? It doesn't have to be a podcast or a fanzine or a band or, or something like that. It could just be just be a drawing. Just express yourself, you know? It could be, it could be a poem. Just put yourself uh, out there for yourself, you know, and make you feel a little bit better. And once again, can't stress this enough, try meditating. Who knows? And uh, that's it. Uh, oh, sign your organ donors card. Remember to sign your organ donors card. And uh, that's it. Bye!
I don't know. My my I I packed. I'm, I'm not at home right now, and I packed the wrong mic. So here we are.